Turn to Isaiah chapter 30. And I'm not going to start by reading the text this morning. I'm actually going to read it along with the sermon, one sort of section at a time. One of my friends and colleagues in ministry has a peculiar quirk. Though he's a smart guy, he's got lots of common sense, he's college and seminary trained, he's got years of experience in campus and pastoral ministry, and despite all of this intelligence, he simply cannot resist infomercials. No matter what they are selling, he's buying. Whatever problem they convince him, he has. And they convince him that they have the solution. I was thinking this week about the persuasive power of those infomercials. And I was reading this morning's text, and it occurred to me what a great but unnecessary infomercial this would be. What a, what a remarkable and delightful yet completely unneeded sales pitch you could make based on Isaiah 30. What's the one thing you never need convincing to accept? What are we always willing to justify? We'll assert benefits no matter how unlikely or unrealistic they are. The one thing for which we claim much better performance in the past than is real. What's the one thing I never need to be sold on or convinced of? It's doing things my way. Here's what God says to Judah. Verse 1. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Judah sees Assyria marching over the horizon. And God told them why this would happen, and God told them that this would happen. But they did not want to believe they did not want to believe that unfaithfulness was the cause. They did not want to believe it would happen at all. And they did not want to believe that repentance was the solution. And so they paint a narrative where they chalk this up to the typical rise and fall of nations and empires. And that allowed them to spend their time looking for a political solution rather than a theological one. One pastor writes, the problem with Judah's thinking was a total lack of faith. Assyria was God's instrument of chastisement. The way to avoid defeat at her hands was to repent and seek the Lord's mercy. Of course, that means that there wasn't some better plan out there for them to devise. There wasn't some better treaty to be made, some better protector for them to find. No, this wasn't a problem that could be solved by doing it their way. What was needed, as Isaiah has said for nearly 30 chapters, is for them to return to faithfulness in God. And nothing else they try is going to work. But try they do. 
Verse 1, they carry out a plan, but it's not God's. Verse 2, they have direction, but that direction is not from God's. He did give them direction, but they preferred the path of old blue eyes. I did it my way. Now, giving in to infomercials just wastes your money. Ask my friend. He's spent a fair amount. Going your own way rather than God's has much more severe consequences. Verse 3, therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at Zoan and his envoys reach Hanez, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. We think these are the things that are going to make us free. We think these are the things that are going to provide for us. We're trying to avoid shame and disgrace. We're trying to avoid calamity. But when we turn to these things, it will always come. And do you notice in that description all the details of their plan that God already knows? He knows where they're going. He knows where the rulers will be. When we're going our own way rather than God's, we like to imagine it's because we've thought of a way he didn't think of. My plan's better than God's, not because I'm smarter, but just he didn't know these details that I know. We like to imagine that there's some information, some perspective that God is missing that justifies our going our own way instead of his. But here, as always, God knows everything. He knows what his people are doing. He knows what the other options and alternatives are. He knew that Egypt was an option before he told them not to turn to Egypt. And among the options, he knows which is best. Because he always does that which is best. Judah is willing to go all the way to Egypt for a chance at salvation. And I mean that in more ways than just geography. Yes, it's a long way, but think about what that means. Egypt is the empire that held the Israelites in slavery for all those years. The miraculous exodus that God provided was to get his people out from underneath the shadow of Egypt. That's the shame and disgrace of verse 5. It's not just that their plan will fail, though it will. It's that they're going back. They are running back to Pharaoh to save them. Sometimes we treat God like that person we know who's usually right, but we never want him to be right. And he might have a good idea, but since it came from him, we're going to ignore it and do anything else we can think of. And that approach is bad enough among people. We cut off our noses despite our face, so to speak. But with God, how sad, how absurd. And yet we persist. One of the reformers said, people will prefer to go to the ends of the earth rather than to receive help from the God who is there. Israel was willing to go all the way back to Egypt to get out of this mess. But they were not willing to go back to God. God already told them it won't work. All these nations are just tools in his hands for his own purposes. Our insistence on doing it my way doesn't pose the slightest threat to God's will. It just sets us as being in opposition to it. What does God think of my way? 
Well, here he mocks it. It's no different than the kings and the rulers of Psalm 2 who take counsel together and set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Back in chapter 28, he mocked the idea of a treaty as being anyone's savior. Yeah, he says, imagine, your life is on the line. You must be saved in this moment. And what do you turn to? A piece of paper. God laughs. Here he mocks the hopeful solemnity of Judah sending bribes all the way to Egypt to try and buy favor and protection from Pharaoh. Verse 6 introduces a, a poem, an oracle with biting sarcasm. We've heard the oracle of Egypt and the oracle of Cush and Sidon so far. But what is this one? An oracle on the beasts of the Negeb. Through a land of trouble and anguish, from where come the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent, they carry on their riches the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty, therefore I have called her Rahab, who sits still. Judah has ignored many of Isaiah's oracles thus far, the oracles on Egypt, the foolishness on anyone putting their trust in them. And so here, God issues another word about the situation. While Judah's rulers are anxiously waiting to hear back word from Egypt, while they're worried with their brows furrow about what the response will be to their treaty, God inspires Isaiah to call out, won't anyone think about the livestock, the camels, and the donkeys? Who will care for them? It's great. Won't anyone speak up for the beasts of burden on whom you've loaded up your treasures and sent them on this treacherous journey with dangerous animals? Oh, and you're worried about Egypt? Oh, Egypt. Well, that's what God says here. Rahab is a nickname for Egypt. It's the word for dragon in verse 7. Egypt, you're worried about? No, they can't save you. Rahab, who sits still, is literally in Hebrew, dragon, do nothing. He says, worry about the donkeys and the camels, not about dragon, do nothing, that can't help you. She will not save because she cannot save. And meanwhile, as God's people load up these beasts and travel this far and sit and furrow their brows in anxiety, God, the God of Israel, waits, ignored by his own people, with storehouses of salvation sitting on the sidelines unused. God had everything they needed right at hand. And they said, I'll do it my way. Egypt seems so strong, so powerful. God wouldn't just want them to do nothing, right? That's the introduction to the infomercial for our way, isn't it? Where we begin to convince ourselves it doesn't really matter what God said or what he promised, what he commanded or what's forbidden. Our families, our jobs, our relationships, our future, something must be done. And no, our way isn't perfect, but it's pretty reliable, right? It can be trusted enough. 
in the technology world, one of the most important metrics is uptime. If you have a website or a service on the internet, people need to know that it's going to be reliable, that it will be there for them when they need to use it. And that reliability is usually expressed through some number of nines. We have 99% uptime. 99% reliable sounds pretty good, right? Except none of these companies say that they have 99% reliability because that's not very good. That means in a year, there are 87 hours, three and a half days that their service is unreliable. How secure should you feel trusting yourself to a savior who rules the universe for all except three and a half days where he turns his attention elsewhere? I hope that's pretty terrifying. But all the time, we functionally replace God with not gods who can't even be that reliable. They're 0% reliable. The best services out there claim five nines, 99.999% uptime. That's pretty solid reliability for technology. But do you want a God who has an eight-hour gap in his sovereignty every year? Where his universe is out of his control? When we turn to not gods, that's what we're doing. The best imaginable not gods, and they are not real. They are imagined. They can provide something less than real reliability. But what does the psalmist say? I lift mine eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. It's not five nines. It's not ten nines. It's not a hundred nines. One hundred percent of the time, God can be trusted. He will be there. So what's the problem in Judah? Why in the world would anyone choose Egypt who can't reliably save them over God who always can? It's verse eight. And now go. Write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For there are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. The book of Isaiah is a permanent witness against this generation in Judah who refuse to hear and obey the word of God. It's particularly an indictment on the leaders who are insistent upon going their own way despite God's word to them. Think about the contrast, another scholar points it out, between these rulers and Israel's rulers of old. Moses, who turned to the word of God, Joshua, David, Jehoshaphat, these men sought the word of God for his people. It's the whole ballgame. It's the most important thing the elders of this church will ever do for this church. The man who stands in this pulpit every Sunday and brings you God's word may not be extraordinarily gifted, but he is bringing you God's word. And on that, we can never compromise. We cannot be like these rulers in Judah who ignored the prophets. They only wanted to hear from those who told them what they wanted to hear. 
God tells Isaiah to write out a big sign and to walk around Jerusalem holding it up that says, this is a rebellious people, lying children who will not hear the law of the Lord. And even to that, they would not listen. The leaders, that same scholar concludes, did not want to hear God's truth. They wanted pleasant words. They wanted sermons that would not disturb their comfortable way of life. There's a lot of preaching in the church today where the primary goal is not to disturb our comfortable way of life. And may God change the hearts of all us men inclined to preach that way. It sounds too simple to say it this way. It sounds almost absurd in its simplicity. But if we believed that God's truth was the truth, we'd follow it more. When God speaks, we would listen and we would act based on what God said. And when we do that, we will make good decisions. But to have the word of God and to ignore it It's a recipe for disaster. But there's great news for us. Christian, God has spoken. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, for man's salvation, for faith and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. We have it. We have God's word and his will, his self-revelation that provides the guidance we need for everything in life. Oh, Israel should have known this. God had been telling them very specific things through his prophets. He'd been giving them very important promises. He demonstrated his power and his sovereignty, his omniscience. But when push came to shove. When the rubber really met the road, they took in all of that and said, I'll do it my way. God already told them this alliance with Egypt was unnecessary and that it would ultimately prove unhelpful. But that wasn't what they wanted to hear. So they ignored it. They moved forward on their own. Thanks to Ray Ortland's commentary, I get to quote Flannery O'Connor twice in two weeks. She wrote this, The truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. I love that line because we act as though it does. If it's truth we don't like, it's not real truth. And I'd add, the truth we can't stomach are most often the truths we need most. For decisions have consequences. Verse 12. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip water out of the cistern. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers will be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, 
And at the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Egypt will not save Judah. God told them to return to him, to trust in his strength rather than their own. But they insisted, I'll do it my way. They didn't want to hear his word. They didn't want to trust his plan for salvation. They didn't want to submit to his lordship and sovereignty, which here would have been his love and protection. We act as though the thing to which God is calling us to submit is so distasteful. We act as though it should be so hard to accept. But what is the thing? God's love and protection, the blessing of union with him, the abundant life that he offers all who believe. And it's against these things that we say, I'll do it my way. God sees what his people are going through. Another pastor described them as fearfully harassed by their un. Belief. Do you know that feeling? Fearfully harassed by unbelief. It's the, it's the pursuer, the foe that is always chasing you, seems always on the advance. And to cure this vice, he tells them to hope, to wait calmly on the Lord to fulfill what he has promised. Therein lies the problem. That's the part they'd never put in the infomercial. (laughs) Because God never acts quickly enough for our tastes when it comes to salvation, does he? We want immediate security and satisfaction. We want quick freedom from anxiety that comes with changed circumstances rather than the slow freedom that comes from trusting God. And so we do it our way. He says in verse 13, we build our own walls of salvation. These will make us safe. And then what happens? They're breached. They're always breached. They cannot save. We make these these vessels, pots, jars, and we, we fill them with hope. But those vessels are of our own making. And they cannot hold the weight of life's trials. will smash them. So much so we won't even be able to find, he says, one useful piece remaining. That salvation, that idol, that not God that we've built so carefully, craftily put together. And we've poured all of our hopes into it, not one shard will be useful. How long do you want to keep going on this way? You may try to boast in it. That's what I'm inclined to do. Look at the Savior I've built. Look at the well-controlled world that I've made. Aren't you impressed with what I've done to save myself? But there's no dignity in going your own way and refusing God, not in the end. It says here there's only shame and humiliation and disgrace as you go back with your tail between your legs to Pharaoh one more time, seeing if he can help. There's no security and satisfaction that we can find outside of God because these not-gods will always come up empty. If I could get this person to love me, then I'd be secure. If I could get this much wealth, 
then I would be safe. If I could get this sexual indulgence or accomplishment, then I will be satisfied. They always come up empty. Because there is no security. There is no satisfaction that comes in setting aside his word. There's just the building up of walls and defense and vessels that will collapse all around us. And into this, God speaks his answer. Verse 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion. In Jerusalem you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it, when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, Be gone. And he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground. And bread, the produce of the ground, will be rich and plenteous. In that day your livestock will graze in large pastures. And the oxen and the donkey that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill there will be brooks running with water. In the day of great slaughter when the towers fall, moreover the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days. In the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Do you see the answer? Do you see what the Lord does? He intervenes. He intervenes in his mercy by grace. He acts among a people who cannot save themselves. He repeats again and again with patience his call for us to turn away from idolatry and back to him. And yes, he will send chastisement, the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. But he does this to show us our great need for him. If our lives are easy because he gives us over to our own ways, we will die in our sin. Judah was terrified of Assyria, but what they should have feared was Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They turn themselves away from God's word, saying, I know what God says, but I don't want to hear it, I don't want to believe it, and I surely will not live by it. They wanted easier lives, not holier lives. They wanted lives on their own terms, not lives with God. You see, many in that day, and many in our day, have fooled themselves into thinking that you can have both. A life on your own terms, and a life with God. But when push comes to shove, when Assyria is at the gates, everyone must make a choice. It's one way or the other. And Judah chose poorly. 
I'll do it my way. Verse 27, behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept and gladness of heart as when one sets out of the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and in flame of devouring fire with cloudburst and storm and hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. Battling with brandishing arm, he will fight with them. For a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready. Its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord like a stream of sulfur kindles it. Who should be in fear? Those who resist the power of God. Those who resist the grace of God. Those who turn away from the word of God. There is a just outcome for those who insist on their own way. The Assyrians and their king will be punished for their wickedness against God's people. But the Judeans who choose Egypt rather than God, the last word for them will be the brunt of that wickedness that comes as judgment from God's own hand. But don't miss the logic of this passage for those who call upon God in faith. It really is remarkable because it goes from Israel's turning aside from the work of God, word of God, Judah's resistance to listen to what God says, to this promise of blessing. And the natural question we would ask is, well, what do they do in between? What do we do to make God gracious? But that's not the logic of the gospel. As another pastor writes, you have been unwilling, therefore I wait to be gracious to you. It just it blows our minds. He will bring healing, even for the wounds that he's brought upon us. These painful indeed were for a good purpose and for a limited time. He will bind up our brokenness. He will bring blessing to his people. And in his time, he will, as it says here, will make all things new. This language is the language of perfection at the end of this, the day of Christ's coming and making all things new. There will be a time when all of God's people turn to him and listen to his voice, and it will be because he, by grace, has opened their ears to his voice once more. In one sense, we shouldn't be too hard on Judah. Aren't we also God's own stubborn children? And in this passage, God is calling us to self-reflection. A life without this and without the repentance that springs forth from it is a life that will be ruined. Stubbornness kills. When I first became a Presbyterian, I mean the form of government, not the doctrines the concept of church discipline took me a while to wrap my mind around. It's clearly biblical, Matthew 18, Titus 3, Hebrews 10 through 13. 
But the idea of chastising someone, the leaders of a church rebuking someone sincerely and and with God's voice on God's behalf, the idea of the leaders of a church warning them against participating in communion, don't do that, or even removing them from the roles of the church, that's intense. Excommunication. But I learned that a person is only excommunicated from the church. Church discipline only progresses for one reason. Oh, sure, church discipline can begin with many sins. Givenness to anger, a deceitful life, sexual impurity. But when church discipline ends with excommunication, the cause was always the same. Spiritual stubbornness. All of us can and do sin in a wide variety of ways. But we, when we are in Christ, we cannot choose our sin, our way over God. We cannot demand our way instead of his. We cannot hear his call and refuse to run and refuse to turn and continue headlong on our own path. We cannot silence his prophets and the preachers. For if we do, like those in Judah had done, we add sin upon sin. We send by putting aside his word and we send again by turning to our own hearts for salvation. In himself, in the word he's given us, God has provided everything we need for saving faith and for abundant life in him. All the tools for security and satisfaction are there from his good hand. So where in life are you turning elsewhere and reaching for something else? Everything that that Judah needed for freedom for safety, for joy, was right next to them in the God who had come near to them and revealed himself. And yet when the moments of truth came for them, they desperately grasped in other directions for something else that would save them. Where are you setting aside his truth and grasping for your truth instead? Where are you demanding control? And like Judah, returning to slavery in the name of freedom. God is concerned for our lives because how we live is an expression of what we believe. What do you believe? What is your, what is your functional faith? A pastor one time hit me right between the eyes when he said it's possible to believe all the right things, but to negotiate everyday life by another wisdom, little different from the world. It's what was happening in Judah. Is it what's happening in your life? In your home? Is it, I'll do it my way? And if it is, be honest. How's that working for you? Sometimes the speaker in the infomercial is us. Sometimes the one selling us the bill of goods, the features and benefits that will never turn out to be true, is us. 
Sometimes, to paraphrase the well-known line, I have seen the enemy. I have seen the stubborn child who needs to be dealt with. The enemy is me. Christian, don't do it your way. Turn to God. For the law of the Lord, it's perfect reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Is there something else you're looking for? Revival and security of soul, wisdom, joy, enlightenment, purity, truth. Is there something else you're looking for? Because God has come near to us in his word and everything we need is right beside us for the taking. There are more to be desired than gold. Even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drips of a honeycomb. And moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them is great reward. Let's pray.